0: Can society be designed? Can personal pain, dysfunction, even mental illness be solved simply through good building design, specifically well-designed apartments? Some 20th century architects, engineers, analysts, and politicians thought so. In fact, there's a story in Yield Pro's October edition that talks about just this topic. See link below for the story. I was born and raised within a stone's throw of the first such housing scheme that promised to change the world, while well, at least the public housing world. Pruitt-Igoe made quite an impression on my life and my city in its brief 18 years before being razed to the ground in 1974. As these apartments were being developed under the post-war New Deal, the government's promise was clear and definitive. The apartments of Pruitt-Igoe would be the first of many to solve poverty, crime and housing in America's cities. Instead, the project became an indelible lesson on the dangerous, albeit unintended, consequences of what happens when city planners remove personal liberty and choice from the equation. In the nearly five decades since pruitt Igo, I am delighted to report that apartment design and strategy has come a long way. Today, we find out just how far Todd Sears, EVP of Research, Policy, and Strategy with the Kittle Property Group in Indiana, has given a lot of thought to this topic. Going as far back as 1948, KPG has developed apartment communities in 18 states. Developing and managing both affordable and market rate properties, Todd takes a systematic approach to housing affordability and investments with social impact. This is going to be fun. Todd, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity and look forward to our discussion.
0: Let's start with a bit about yourself and Kittle Property Group. What do we need to know?
1: Well, my background is mostly around finance and investments, but my experience has touched on a variety of different topics. Um, I started my career in commercial real estate, working for a large bank in Chicago, and then uh, also in Chicago at a large accounting consulting firm. And then um, about uh, the mid-90s, I switched over and came back to Indiana, went to work for the Indiana Housing Finance Authority, um, working on affordable housing, and also the Indianapolis Neighborhood Housing Partnership, a local nonprofit. So my background's covered a combination of public, private, and nonprofit entities. Uh, About 16 years ago, I made the transition over to Kittle Property Group, and I've had various roles here, including finance, asset management, property management, design, and most recently, leading a new function for research Uh, public policy and strategy. Kittle Property Group uh, really has had three different iterations of owners starting uh, back in uh, 1948, as you mentioned. So we focus primarily on affordable and workforce housing developments with approximately 17,000 units in about 16 states, most of them east of the Rockies.
0: Kittle recently went through a rebranding, even moved their headquarters. Does this portend of a new direction for the company?
1: Well, yes and no. So, yes, it does reflect the transition uh, for the company from Tom Herman, uh, who retired about a decade ago, to Jeff Kittle, who's been with the company since the mid 1990s. Uh, but no, the fundamental game plan that we have for the company, uh, as a vertically integrated real estate company with a focus on affordable and workforce housing, that's really remained the same. the uh, The relocation of the headquarters uh, is an interesting but kind of coincidental issue that happened uh, last year. Our lease was expiring in 2020. And we were looking at options, uh, including just staying where we were right about the time that COVID took hold. And a building uh, in the office park uh, where we were located came on the market uh, and it was a really good opportunity. So Jeff decided to purchase the building uh, rather than sign in new lease that are at our old location. Um, And we've just moved in in the last few months. Uh, It's had terrific reviews from our staff members and just recently uh, won won an award for uh, interior design here in Indianapolis.
0: You are EVP of research, policy, and strategy, Todd. I don't know of many companies your size with research departments. What advantage does a dedicated research team give your company?
1: Well, it's a very perceptive question about the size of the company. You know, if you look at companies that have 25,000 units or more, this type of role is really common. But at 15,000 units, uh, it's a little bit ahead of its time and, and a little bit unusual. But we have a long history of kind of starting initiatives uh, with some lead time. It gives us a chance uh, to gain a first mover advantage and really helps us uh, kind of uh, target our strategy to where we need to be as opposed to where we, where we currently sit. Um, you know, like many small, medium-sized developers, uh, we have grown piecemeal over the last few decades. If, if we needed a a system to help us track our people, well, then we got an HR software system. And if we needed a system to help us design, to handle our design and our construction projects, well, we got a project management software system. And if we needed a compliance system, we got a compliance software system. All these different separate systems. Um, But if we want to get to the next level, to the next scale uh, of where we're headed, well, that requires a lot more integration and collaboration. And to do that, you got to have the systems and the people, not just me, um, that can work together uh, and talk to each other through multiple data sets, multiple software systems, so that we can become more efficient as we become larger. So it's uh, this position, this role really is a little bit early in our company's lifecycle, but it's the step we needed to take in order to continue on the growth path that, that we've been on for the last couple of years.
0: KPG is definitely vertically integrated with its own development, design, finance, construction and property management. How does this structure contribute to success?
1: Yeah, that's that's true. We have a really long history of uh, vertical integration across a wide variety of functions. Uh, It doesn't mean that vertical integration for us is an absolute or it's sacrosanct. Uh, We challenge vertical integration as a business model from time to time for all of our functions. But generally, what we find is it really provides the flexibility uh, and allows us to be adaptable and take advantage of new opportunities and changing circumstances as market conditions or the environment changes. I think the, the trick about vertical integration in real estate, maybe this is true in any business, but certainly real estate, is that it changes your emphasis from maximizing the margin on each transaction or each project to maximizing the flow or the speed of the work that you're doing. So Conceptually, the fixed cost uh, of a vertical integration company is bigger, and it requires uh, you to build momentum and kind of keep that train rolling down the tracks. And we often refer to that as our flywheel. Uh, Our flywheel has four components. Employ great people, develop a standard product, generate short and long-term cash flow so that you can uh, reinvest and grow the portfolio. And the vertical integration model really sets us up to make that flywheel move.
0: One KPG initiative is to standardize property designs in order to lower costs. That is a well-worn strategy pursued by others like Humphreys and Guterra. How has it worked, especially with so many different site conditions?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I guess I should say, first of all, we're still in the early process of standardizing our designs and our developments. Typically have a long two to three year cycle in the development phase. So we're just starting now to see some of the benefits Uh, Of this standardized product coming through our system for projects that were really started a couple of years ago. Um, In-house design has been a one of the components of our company uh, since our original founder. Um, And for many years, especially when we were building in more rural markets, we could use the same product multiple times. But to your point, um, that's become more challenging as we've increased the volume of our activity and we put more emphasis on suburban and urban models in particular markets uh, in particular. I, I'm not uh, familiar with the details of Humphreys or Katera uh, beyond, you know, what's in the general press or, you know, the information that I kind of pick up at conferences. But I do know for us, uh, standardization was not just or really even primarily about a lower cost. Uh, yeah, hopefully that happens. I mean, that would be a great byproduct. But we're standardizing in order to gain efficiency from, con- from a consistent product and repetition it goes back to that flywheel. It's all about that flow and making that flywheel spin as fast as possible. And standardization is what really helps us um, uh, gain that consistency and get rid of as much friction as possible. So hopefully, uh, and you would expect that over time, one of the uh, results of that, one of the things you could see from that would be lower cost. But our real motivation going into it was to make that flywheel spin so that we could get um, more repetition, faster, uh, faster turn uh, in the work that we're doing. The, the other part of your question uh, had to do with site-specific situations, um, and these always come into play. And, and one of the things that I find as I talk to people about standardized product is everybody has a little bit different definition of what standardized means uh, at a different level of detail. So, for example... Uh, I don't think we'll ever be able to standardize to the extent that we could pound the nail in the shingle in the home office and FedEx it to the site and expect somebody was going to install it and make it work. That's just not, we're not at that level of detail, but we are looking to standardize around things like the building footprint, the standard unit mixes, the standard finishes and amenities and the floor plans. Those are the kinds of things we can standardize and yet still adapt or adopt the model so that it works in in each location. KPG
0: has moved up the ranks of affordable housing developers and owners. Why the focus on affordable?
1: Yeah, KPG and its predecessors have a long history with affordable housing. I mean, currently we do a lot of tax exempt bond deals, but previously we did 9% tax credit deals. And before that, uh, we did a lot of rural housing before the tax credit program even came around. So it's always provided the company uh, with a balance of uh, three things that are really important uh, to any company. Uh, it, it gives us some near-term or short-term fees that uh, come through our development and our construction activities. It gives us some longer-term cash flow from operations, um, which, are, which is important. And it helps us build a portfolio of properties that can achieve economies of scale as we grow and expand into new markets. So we're not having to rebuild a team every time we you know, do the next deal in, in a market where we've been before.
0: You're also active in workforce housing. What's the secret to unsubsidized housing that's affordable to low-income renters.
1: Yeah, uh, hard work, lots of risk. Uh, I don't think we have any magic formula on this one. Uh, Workforce housing is tough, uh, for sure. Uh, It it does help. We have a great operating platform that we can start with and having development, design and construction systems, uh, all of those crossover really well into workforce housing and I think do give us some advantage uh, on that front. But uh, I think the biggest thing for us uh, that makes a difference relative to workforce housing is that most of our affordable portfolio has a component to it that's unrestricted and market rate already. And so when we go to when we went to do our first workforce housing deal, it was a shift in what we do, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a big step or a big difference in what we do. It was it was really a, a continuation or a further shift uh, in the component of the units and the incomes and the residents that that we typically serve. And frankly, you know, uh, in the Midwest, in particular, where we where we grew most of our portfolio initially, the difference between the affordable market and the workforce market really wasn't that that significant. They were almost the same up until just the last couple of years. So, you know, for us, we've eased into this workforce housing, and it's really grown to become an important component of what we do uh, year in year out.
0: Everyone knows about the exodus from the urban core. Some say there was a significant shift away from senior housing during COVID as well. How did KPG's senior housing properties fare over the last year? And what's your outlook?
1: Yeah, so senior housing makes up about 10% of our portfolio. Uh, most of it is in the Midwest. Um, and I think the first thing to understand about senior housing, at least for us, is um, it's it's mostly in the affordable component of our portfolio as opposed to the market rate. Uh, and similar to what I just said uh, about workforce housing, most of our deals have a pretty significant uh, Component of that that is unrestricted, or it, it, the rental rates are not restricted. So we're not in the uh, we're not in the groups that really I think struggled with COVID, like assisted living or memory care or other components of the senior market that were hit really hard. We're uh, really in that component where people are making that transition, that first transition out of a home ownership situation uh, and moving into uh, moving into seniors. Uh, into a, an age-restricted facility. Uh, you know, looking at our portfolio, uh, pulled a few stats. Same-store sales, apple-to-apple apple comparison. Uh, our occupancy in January 2020 uh, for our senior portfolio was 94.8 percent. Our occupancy in October of 2020, so a year ago, was 94.7 percent, and our occupancy today is 94.4 percent. So almost identical across the board. And I think that really goes to, again, the kind of the characteristics of our senior portfolio uh, and the folks that uh, the folks that we serve. It's been a great it's been a great addition and component of our portfolio. And I think it really comes down to our senior residents have very stable income, sometimes from Social Security, maybe from part time work, maybe from a pension or a savings account. Uh, But they were all used to dealing with a pretty cost conscious environment and uh, have weathered the current storm pretty well.
0: So Todd, now the question that only you can answer, can apartment design cure social woes?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know about curing the social woes, but I do know that design can either help or hurt a community and its residents. Uh, People recognize good design when they see it, even if they don't have a technical background in design, when you see good design, uh, you know it, and so do the residents. So I think for us, uh, bringing design in-house, having that part of our vertical integration model, model, it's a critical component to what we do, and it's particularly important uh, for, the, for affordable housing and the residents that we serve.
0: Well, there's no doubt that analytics will continue to play a great part in commercial real estate, especially in the way of opportunity. Thanks for joining us, Todd.
1: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: You too. We've come a long way from the social engineering of the last century. Forecasting, statistical analysis, especially AI, will play an ever bigger part in outcomes and success. The one thing that remains the same, it always begins with housing. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Linda Hoffman. See you on our next exciting episode of NAHB Power Hitters.